Well, that truly was a beautiful array uh, of songs to lead us in worship. Great to see you, church family. An immense privilege to be able to gather together as the people of God. We really are those that are the most privileged people. Uh, Indeed, uh, to be the children of God, to have the love of God poured out upon us. And what the people of God love to do is to be face-to-face with God. And the glory of God uh, is revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. And as we're in the pages of Scripture, having our hearts and minds refreshed, we are really uh, beholding the glory of God. We are, we are in the presence of God face-to-face as we read His Word. Particularly on the Lord's Day when all the means of grace uh, afforded to us by God uh, are present. Where God pours out grace upon grace upon grace through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the privilege is all ours uh, to have our minds turned afresh to the Word of God. We get lost in worship, which is great. We sing and we lose ourselves and that's great. Uh, We don't become empty-minded, but our minds are full of the truth of who God is. And so that is an immense, immense privilege. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of John. We come again this morning to this most precious Gospel. We find ourselves, obviously, in chapter 3, where there is this conversation taking place between our Lord Jesus and this man, Nicodemus, who was the most prominent teacher in all of Israel. This is our third Sunday in this passage. We're taking a few rinses through it because it would just be too significant. Rather, it is too significant just to burn past. And what we've seen so far is that Jesus, without apology or reservation or even a single qualification, in the opening eight verses of this discussion between he and Nicodemus, we've seen that Jesus has, by way of earthly metaphor, namely birth, water, and wind, taught that to be born again, which is to be regenerated, born anew, born from above, is not something a person does, but it's something that happens to them, which means that it proceeds, comes before believing in Jesus by faith. It means that it is the result of the new birth And not the cause of it. Our faith is the result of the new birth. And not the cause of it. We are born again and then we believe. And we do not believe and are then born again. We saw that that flaws Nicodemus. And sadly many Christian too. We see Nicodemus respond to all of that in verse 9. You remember that. uh, Nicodemus says, how can this happen? How can these things be? We saw also that Jesus then presses in on Nicodemus by telling him that he is an unbeliever in verse 12, that he's unable to understand earthly matters such as regeneration, which takes place here on earth, and that he's unable to understand heavenly matters such as Jesus ascending and descending from heaven and Jesus being lifted up, which refers to his crucifixion, where he acts as our substitute and redeemer. And that lifting up Jesus upon the cross has a purpose. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 32, When I am lifted up from the earth, 
then I will draw all people to myself. And we see the express purpose in verse 15 of our passage this morning. Look there, verse 15 of John chapter 3. The express purpose of the Son of Man being lifted up, which is mentioned in verse 14, is so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So that. So that. That's the purpose. I want us to begin to reacquaint our hearts and minds with all that's going on here by begin reading in verse 9 through to the end of the chapter, which will be our focus over the next several weeks. So follow along with me in your Bible, beginning in verse 9 of John chapter 3. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Or how can this happen? That regeneration is solely a work of God. That mankind is a passive recipient in the new birth. How can this be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and you test and, and testify of what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? We saw last week Jesus then goes on to immediately tell him heavenly things. And here's the first one. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Let's pray. Father, we come with hearts full. In gratitude. We've sung of your praises. We come asking that you might be pleased with all that transpires here today. We believe in the Holy Spirit of God. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit to move mightily among us to do an illuminating work of your Holy Scripture. Plant these truths deep inside our heart. Help us to leave here shining brighter as we behold your glory, the glory of the only begotten from you, Father, full of grace and truth. Aid us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I really want us to camp out in verse 15 this morning. And if we can, but I highly doubt it, we may touch on verse 16 too. But as I begin, I want you to see that when Jesus says in verse 3 of John chapter 3, look there. When Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the
the kingdom of God. When Jesus says that, he is saying that it is an impossibility to enter the kingdom of God, enter eternal life, simply and solely by choice. I think we understand that. That's pretty simple. He's saying something must happen to you. And this is where the auto salutis, as it's known, which simply means the order of salvation begins to unfold for us. Biblical doctrine, the systematic theology, has a good section on this for you to read in its salvation section. When it comes to the order of salvation, think of it as a way to highlight the aspects or facets of salvation. Think of it that those facets and aspects and components of salvation are distinct from each other and yet all while being distinct are related to each other both logically and chronologically. You can ask, well, who cares about the intricacies of the order? I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I know in whom I have believed and I don't need to know that kind of thing. Well, allow me to show you just quickly how understanding the auto salutis, the order of salvation, can help you. For there are many cases when the understanding of doctrinal truth, which isn't just simply about knowing doctrine, it is knowing God. Many cases where the understanding of doctrinal truth hinges upon understanding the order of salvation. A great example of this, you may recall, is from chapter 1, verse 12. Turn back with me there and look at verse 12. It says there in John chapter 1, verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That there shows us, you remember, that the right, the legal right, the formal and legal right to become a child of God, that is to experience adoption as sons and daughters into God's family, where we no longer live with God as a punitive judge, but as a loving, providing father, we see that the formal and legal right to become a child of God is conditioned upon receiving and believing in Christ, which is itself conditioned upon being, look at verse 13, being born of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you think of glorification as well, which is the full expression of our final salvation, when we get to go to be with God in heaven, when you think of glorification, Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, that Jesus Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. In other words, saying that the body that we have now is pretty average. <laughs> Aches and pains. Unredeemed sinful flesh. Christ will transform our body and 
It'll be a body that is in conformity with the body of his glory. We will receive a resurrected body. That hasn't happened yet. As you feel that twinge. <laughs> as you suffer with that sickness. That hasn't happened yet. Our bodies are yet to be transformed. When we receive those resurrected bodies. That is still to come chronologically. Right? Still to come chronologically. There really is no clearer passage than that of Romans chapter 8, verse 29 to 30, when it comes to emphasizing the auto salutis, the order of salvation. Listen as I read that for you. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn, that is the preeminent, that's what firstborn means, preeminent, among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What we have in John 3 playing out is a glimpse inside God's auto salutus, his order of salvation. Anyone who experiences the new birth has been prior to the new birth foreknown and predestined by God. That's called election. Where God the Father has in eternity past chosen a people to give to the Son. Jesus all through John 6 we'll see, all through John 10 we'll see, and all through John 17 we'll see, speaks of those whom you have given me before the world was. The new birth comes chronologically and logically after election. What comes after that is what is known as the effectual call. The effectual call. The effectual call is really the new birth. It really is regeneration. Where God, by sovereign grace, draws a lost sinner out of spiritual darkness and death into spiritual life and light. The effectual call, it's called the effectual call because it's effective. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. It's an effectual call. It's given only to the elect, only to those who were given by the Father in eternity past to the Son. And it always results... Being effectual, it always results in a person's salvation. I want you to listen very carefully to Acts chapter 13, verse 48. When the people heard, that's Acts 13, 48. When the people heard the word of salvation, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And listen to this. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed they heard the word of salvation and as many as had been appointed God's word says to eternal life believed and this is what Jesus is doing with Nicodemus here in John 3 
He's doing it both to him personally. And Jesus is speaking through Nicodemus to the people of God in the world. Let me explain. Look again at verse 3 of John 3. Truly, truly, I say to you. That there is singular, the you. It's directed at Nicodemus. I say to you, Nicodemus. Then look at verse 7. Do not be amazed. Why, was, why would Jesus say do not be amazed? Because Nicodemus, we saw, was absolutely floored by this. Religiosity the world over is floored by sovereign grace. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The you there is plural. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and yet he's also talking through Nicodemus to the Jews without distinction. So those who are appointed to eternal life will hear and believe. He's talking to the Gentiles without distinction. So those who are appointed to eternal life will hear and believe. He's talking to all people without distinction so that those who are appointed to eternal life will hear and believe. Yet look at verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Those two yous in verse 11 are also plural. Meaning, the rebuke for not receiving the testimony of God in Christ goes through Nicodemus to the nation of Israel and to the wider world who heard and rejected the message of Christ. Which means the author of salvation is not the will of man. Nor the will of the flesh, but God. The author of the internal call of regeneration cannot be man. It simply cannot be man, but one who created all things. And the one who created all things is the one who creates new life in the heart of a believer. And so everything... Everything, as it pertains to salvation, is a gift. Our election, our regeneration, the new birth. And then the next facet in the order of salvation. And next in our exposition of John chapter 3 is conversion. Conversion. That is faith and repentance. Look again at verse 15. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. And so the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, was lifted up so that whoever believes will in him, key phrase, will in him, for it shows our union with Christ that we'll see later on, 
will have certainty, will have eternal life. This is the first of over a dozen, I believe it's 15 to be exact, references to eternal life in this gospel. The first here. I made mention two weeks ago that eternal life is what it means to see the kingdom of God. So in the ultimate sense, eternal life means to participate in the eternal kingdom at the end of the age and upon our resurrection unto life where we receive our resurrected bodies. But it's not restricted to just solely that futuristic sense. Jesus said in John chapter 17 verse 3, this is eternal life. To what? To know God and Jesus whom you have sent. If you know God and Jesus whom you have sent, Jesus says you are in possession right now of eternal life. Look at verse 16, ahead of verse 15 in John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Not will have, but have eternal life. Present possession of eternal life. The very life of God in our very soul. And so what are the means or what is the means of this new birth and eternal life? What is the way? That's what, meant, what is meant by means. What is, the, what is the, the method? What is the way in which this new birth and this present possession of eternal life comes about? What, what is the means by which this comes about? Well, we know that God the Father is the ultimate cause in sovereign election. We know that He is the ultimate cause. We know that the Son, the Lord Jesus, redeems an actual people on the cross, accomplishing redemption for them. And we know that the Spirit applies the accomplished redemption of the Son in regeneration, in the new birth, when He quickens and livens the spiritually dead heart of the sinner. We know that. But what is the means, the method? What theologians call the instrumental cause of regeneration. What is the instrumental cause of regeneration? The answer the Word of God, the gospel message. I mentioned at the beginning biblical doctrine. I've been so indebted by that this week. Been able to draw from that. It's so helpful in its soteriology section. The answer, the Word of God, which contains the gospel message. That is the way. That is the means by which God brings about the new birth. The regeneration of a person. James chapter 1 verse 18 says, In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. Brought us forth. Brought us to life. So, in the will of the Father, that's the ultimate cause of regeneration, the new birth. 
But he accomplishes that supernatural work of regeneration by the word. By the word of the gospel. I read it last week as we began. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, which says, For you have been born again, you have been regenerate, made regenerate, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. A couple of beautiful verses that we would do well to dig in deep to one day is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Tune your hearts and minds to this one. Let me read it for you. We always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you, through our gospel, through the gospel. It was for this He called you, through the gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you notice that? Through the gospel. So the Spirit of God works to sovereignly regenerate the mind, the affections, and the will of people through the proclamation of the gospel message, which is the word of truth. And so what you have colliding in perfect grace-filled harmony is the internal call of God where God effectually draws a lost sinner to himself. You have that internal call of God colliding in perfect harmony with the external call of Christians as he or she proclaims the gospel. And because we know not who God is drawing to himself according to his sovereign plan, we share and we are to share and proclaim the gospel to all. The external call performed by us as believers is the instrumental cause, the sole cause of people coming to faith and sharing in the life of Christ in the new birth. And that's what Jesus is driving at. That's where things are at in our journey through John 3 right now. When Jesus says what he says in verse 15, this is exactly what's going on. And we only have one heading again this morning, so let me give that to you now. We saw last week, last Sunday in verses 10 to 14, a heavenly redemption. This morning we see a human responsibility. In verses 15 to 21, a human responsibility. In verse 15, Jesus is highlighting the necessity for the external call so that lost sinners such as Nicodemus was at this point can call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Listen to Romans chapter 10, verse 13 for a moment. 
You know it well. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Listen to the rest of that passage in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 17, the very next verse. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. For souls to experience the new birth, there must be the proclamation of the gospel. And upon hearing the gospel in accordance with the will of God, that person is brought to life and believes unto salvation. And that is brought about by the act of faith. The act of belief, which is the act of trust. To understand this, I want you to look again at verse 15 and note what it does not say. Verse 15 does not say, whoever regards him will have eternal life. Verse 15 does not say, whoever appreciates him will have eternal life. No, it says, whoever believes Whoever trusts. So what we see is that the act of faith, that is believing, trusting, is the first result of the new birth. It's the first result of the new birth. God shines light into the heart. And then we see for the first time. Perhaps one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture to highlight this is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. It's in our foyer. Let me read it for you. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So we receive... Remember, as passive recipients, the new birth, we are born from above. The word again, born again, again means above, born from above. So we receive the new birth as passive recipients, and then having been made alive to God, born again, having the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, blazed into our hearts, we then turn away from the vileness of our sin, having seen it for the first time for what it truly is. And then we turn to Christ because we then see Him for the first time in all the splendor and beauty and majesty and worthiness that he is. 
And we embrace him by faith, by belief, by trust as Lord and Savior. Whoever has faith in him, Jesus is saying, will have eternal life. But what about salvation being all of God? I mean, you've just been a broken record the last three Sundays. What about salvation just being all of God? How can it be all of God and yet whoever believes is saved? That's like, that sounds like some role of responsibility. You see... Even though faith itself, we are told in Scripture, is a gift from God. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, which says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, speaking of grace and faith. It is the gift of God. And even though repentance is spoken of in Scripture as a gift as well, which, listen to Acts chapter 11, verse 18, carefully, which says, When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, To the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Incredible. Faith and repentance are gifts. And even though saving faith... And repentance are gifts from God. And even though salvation and new life can only come from God, there are aspects of redemption, salvation, that require active participation on our behalf. To deny that is to be off kilter. To deny that is to be fatalistic. To deny that is to be hyper-Calvinist. You see, even though God, by His grace, grants us faith, the gift of faith, He does not do the believing for us. And even though God, by His grace, grants us as a gift, repentance... He does not do the turning away from sin for us. In regeneration, mankind is completely and utterly passive. Just one more time. The new birth happens to us. Yet once that supernatural work of shedding light into our hearts, giving us eyes to see Christ, for the glorious Savior occurs, once that happens and we've been gifted with the new birth and been gifted with faith and repentance, God does not believe for us. We must believe. We must exercise faith. And we can. We can. Because we have been made willing. By God's sovereign grace. Outside of God's sovereign grace, there is no ability. 
inside of God's sovereign grace, there is grace-fueled ability. Because of sovereign, amazing, earth-shattering grace. Not because of your will. My friend and fellow pastor, Mike Riccardi, who authored much of the systematic theology, biblical doctrine, he's always been so helpful to me in explaining the nature of faith. He does so in such a helpful and rich and precise way, and I want to share that with you. He rightly says that faith, that is trust in Jesus, believing, belief, consists of intellectual, emotional, and volitional elements. That is to say that first, the most basic element of faith is knowledge. Knowledge. And one of the great insights Mike gives is that true saving faith in Jesus is grounded upon the truth of Galatians 2.16, which says, Yet we know that a person is not justified, made to be declared legally right before God, A person is not made right before God by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16. Because, and what is meant by that, highlighting that, is because we know that works do not save us. I mean, we literally stand alone as Christians believing that works do not save us. Every other religion in the entire world, and I mean every other, Believes in salvation by works. We stand alone. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. And because we know that works do not save us, and it's by faith, we then believe by faith that Christ saves us. Mike articulates that believing is not a mindless leap in the dark or some kind of trust without knowledge. We do not believe, he says, according to subjective whims, but we believe the truth. Faith that is not grounded in objective truth is no faith at all. And so saving faith is intellectual. But let me just say, that does not require a certain level of IQ in order to believe. It just means that belief in who Jesus is and what he has done is required. The second element of faith, after knowledge, is assent. Assent. By this, what is meant is that knowing facts is not enough. There are many people growing up in a Christian home who know facts about Jesus. There are many people who, perhaps even in this room, who know a lot of facts about Jesus, but haven't yet come to saving faith in Jesus. Because what is meant by assent is that there is an emotional element also in saving faith. Mike states, quote, that faith not only knows the truth, but it also assents to and wholeheartedly embraces the truth as it is revealed in Scripture. 
Think about the wonderful definition that God gives us in his word concerning faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, which says faith is the assurance, right, of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so when a person believes in Jesus, having become by grace and by grace alone, innately and acutely aware of their helpless state, they look to Jesus and see not only facts, but they feel and assent with emotion to the conviction that He is an all-sufficient Savior. All-sufficient, all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful Savior. That has remedied their sin Sick soul. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Someone say amen. (laughs) The last element of saving faith is trust. Trust. Knowledge, assent, and then trust. This is an important one. For example, Nicodemus here in John 3, he was aware that Jesus was, as he said he was, you are a great teacher sent from God. Yet he did not possess saving faith at this point. And once again, I just love how Mike explains the element of trust. He writes, quote, faith begins with knowledge and assent. But listen to this. But it does not stop until it reaches the will's utter reliance on Christ for one's personal salvation. End quote. So there is in saving faith faith, the notion That knowledge becomes conviction, which leads to confidence and trust. John Murray wrote in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, he wrote, faith is a receiving and resting upon Jesus. Resting upon Jesus. Why rest? What does that mean, rest? Because by knowledge and conviction... That then leads to confidence, and confidence becomes something we rest in the fact that Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. My life is hidden with Christ, and he is my refuge, my strong tower. I can rest under his mighty care for me. He not only paid it all, but he lived it all. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law that I could never fulfill. He lived and died on my behalf. What I could not do, he did. So you can think of saving faith this way. We believe the truth about Christ, which then causes us to believe in Christ as we personally trust him, Resulting in us depending upon Christ for the forgiveness of sins, for peace with God, for a righteousness not our own, but one that is graciously given as a gift, that we are clothed with. Every believer here who's been born again, born from above, and who has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to say to you, like me, you remain sinful. You sinned last night and you'll sin today. And yet when God looks at the believer, 
He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And his love for you is unending because his love for his son has only ever been eternal. Isn't that beautiful? That's what it means to believe. Jesus says, whoever believes. Now, you cannot take that and run to universalism. You just can't do that. We're about to hit John 3.16. <laughs> you can't do that. That is exegetical gymnastics and a misrepresentation of God. But what you can do is understand that when Jesus says to Nicodemus, whoever, whoever believes, he's saying not just the Jews, Nicodemus, not just the Jews, but all ethnicities from the world over. Nicodemus would have been rocked by that. Why? Because remember, Nicodemus was a hypocrite. Nicodemus was an arrogant religious Jew. Remember that Nicodemus taught and believed that Israel alone would enter the kingdom of God solely on the basis of their ethnicity. Nicodemus should have known the truth of Isaiah 49 verse 6, which says, Yahweh speaking of the Messiah, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Whoever believes, whoever puts their faith and trust in Jesus will in him as present possession have eternal life. What are the consequences of such faith? What are the results of such faith. Well, that leads to the next aspect of the ordo salutis, which you remember means order of salvation. What are the consequences of faith? What is the result of faith? Well, it is justification. Justification. Justification is our right standing, a declaration of our right standing before God. And then underline this. It is solely... Our justification, our being made right before God, is solely on the merit and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not your merit, not your righteousness, not your works. It is solely on the works of Jesus Christ on your behalf, in His living and His dying. And that, that justification occurs in the life of the believer by the instrument of faith. Faith. This is the doctrine of sola fide. Sola fide. There were five solas in the Protestant Reformation. And the Reformation still goes on. Semper reformanda. Always reforming. Sola fide. Fide. Sola is the Latin word for alone. Fide is obviously the word for faith. By faith alone we are justified. Meaning that good works contribute not a smidgen 
to justification. Martin Luther called this, sola fide, the article upon which the entire Christian faith stands or falls. Calvin called it the hinge upon which everything in the Christian life turns. The Westminster Confession put it very well when it states, quote, faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification, end quote. It is fundamentally necessary to have a firm grip on this doctrine of sola fide by faith alone because it is literally how we are saved. Literally. It is important, however, to understand that faith is not the grounds of our justification or our right standing before God. The grounds of our justification is the righteousness of Christ and His merits and His work on our behalf. You've heard me say this before. Our faith does not save us. Faith is the conduit between us and God. So do not ever have faith in faith. Do not ever have faith in faith. Faith is not the grounds of our justification. The grounds of our justification is the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, His merit, His work on our behalf. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. In Jesus Christ alone. And that is where I want us to end this morning by taking just a second by getting a brief glimpse into an incredibly important little phrase in verse 15. Notice again what verse 15 does not say. And if you have an ESV in your hand, you're not going to see it because the translation committee of the ESV really blew it on this verse. Verse 15 does not say, Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. It says, Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. You say, what's the significance of that? Well, the significance is that in the Greek, this is a unique grammatical arrangement here in verse 15 to teach that belief in Jesus places us not simply in a saving relationship with Him whereby belief we get eternal life. Instead, verse 15 is saying that by faith we enter into union with Christ. Union with Christ. Union with Christ is a beautiful truth. It's been well said that the concept of being united with Christ is the most vital spiritual intimacy that one can imagine between the Lord and His people. What does it mean? Well, union with Christ means that we are not simply ambassadors for Christ. Union with Christ means that we are not simply associates of Christ. Union with Christ doesn't simply mean that we're solely worshippers of Christ. 
Union with Christ doesn't mean that we're just simply followers of Christ. No, we are so united to Christ that we are in Him and He is in us. That is what Paul meant when he wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's incredible. By union with Christ, Jesus truly is our righteousness. By union with Christ, He is our life, truly. And He is our substitute, truly. We have been crucified with Him. We have died with Him. We have been buried with Him. We have been raised with Him into newness of life. And according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, remarkably, we have been enthroned in heaven with Him. By our union with Christ, we are beneficiaries of all the blessings that are His. The Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. And when we think of union with Christ, we need to understand that it is not just another step in that order of salvation. I need you to understand that. Union with Christ is not the next step after justification. By faith. It's not. It's not the next thing we receive after experiencing the new birth. Or even prior to faith in Christ. Because our union with Christ truly does embody all aspects of our salvation. Everything from the Father's election of us, to the Son's atonement for us, to the Spirit's regeneration in us. And yet here is what is beautifully important to understand. Even though union with Christ encompasses, as I said, all the aspects of salvation, our election, our redemption, our regeneration, our sanctification, our glorification. Until we actually come into possession of those things, we are hopelessly lost. And what weds us? What weds us to all the spiritual blessings that are in Christ? What places us into union with Christ? What ushers in all the realities and privileges and unspeakable joys of knowing and being known by Jesus Christ? What weds us to the heavenly redemption He purchased for us? And what weds us to the new birth in regeneration? What weds us to all those spiritual blessings and what weds us to Jesus Christ Himself? What is it? It's faith. 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 Belief. Trust. When we believe and we trust in Jesus, we are wedded to all the spiritual blessings of union with Christ. Perhaps there is no more wonderful expression and explanation of the sovereign grace of God alone in salvation and our union with Him than 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Let me read it as we close. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. But by His doing, 
you are in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. Who became to us wisdom from God. And who became to us righteousness. And who became to us sanctification. And who became to us redemption. There it is. All bound up. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. So that it is written, Paul concludes in verse 31, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. I beg you, to the person who's unconverted here this morning, put a simple trust in a strong Savior, Acknowledge your sin and trust in Him. That He died upon the cross. That on that cross He bore the penalty that was due you for your sin. That He atoned for your sin. He took it in your place. And then He rose again the third day, overcoming death. Trust in Him today. No more games. Child of God. Rejoice. And rest in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before You and say thank You for this immense immense privilege thank you for your word thank you for verse 15 thank you for your son thank you for your spirit thank you for sending your son thank you for enabling him by the power of your spirit to live on our behalf to endure the agonies of the cross and to rise again thank you for the joy it is to be known by you and to know you Thank you for eternal life that we possess now and that will be fulfilled in the fullest of sense when we go to be with you in glory. I pray for the heart of the lost here. Father, would you do a work in their heart and would they this very day, as evidence of your work, just trust in you, your son, the Lord Jesus. We love you. We long to know you more. We thank you that through your word, we learn to know you more. May we never separate the ministry of the Holy Spirit to that of the ministry of your word. Because you tell us in your word, to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the word. And so, Father, we come before you and asking for grace upon grace that we would live and leave here a little more like you, your son. And it's in his name we pray and all God's people said.